We are studying the book of Revelation, knowing that there are certain things we are sure are going to happen, and other things that have to do with timing and uh, identifying of characters and all. Not so sure, but we're but we can we can tie things together from Genesis to Revelation and, and realize that there's a lot that we can learn from it because remember that the, the, the name for the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, means the revealing of Jesus Christ. So there, this is a revealing of things, even though there are things yet to happen. Now one of the great uh, problems today in, in the study of eschatology, which is the study of last things, is timing of everything, when things are going to happen. And I think that we can take uh, a cue from Jesus as well as some of the apostles who told us that that's, timing is, is all in God's hands. Not, uh, not for us to worry about that. Not to worry about the day or the hour because the Lord knows when He's coming. That's the important thing. He comes as a thief in the night. What we need to be encouraged with is that He is coming. And we're looking forward to that. And so the study of eschatology, or the study of the book of Revelation, or the study of prophecy, and the study of especially all the prophecies from the Old Testament into the New Testament, really should be an encouragement to us. Though at times it might seem a little hard, like last week. I know some of you are looking at me like, where are we here? But we did make some points that were very important tying together what we were seeing in Revelation 17 with Daniel chapters 2 and and 7. We're not really done with Daniel yet, but we're not going to even go there tonight because I want you guys to look at me like you know what you're hearing, okay? And I know what I'm doing. (laughs) So we're going to get beyond some of those things. Yes, I reviewed my notes and I realized I taught everything the way I wanted to and the way it was supposed to, and it'll all make sense after tonight. Well, at least that's my hope. So tonight we're going to start in verse 15 of Revelation. Let me get this thing working here. Let me give some help here. Give me some help. Thank you. We'll start there. Verse 7, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 17, verse 15. Then he said to me, This is the angel speaking to John, just to bring you back to where we are in the chapter. He said to me, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And again, we, I just didn't want to go all the way back and read the whole thing, but if you read the beginning of the chapter, you realize uh, there is a, a character that is presented to us called <clears throat> the great harlot, the... Uh, Uh, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. The the mother of of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And it tells us there that she sits on the waters. We talked about the waters uh, from verse 15 because this is the definition of the waters. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So anytime we see seas... From the prophetic aspect in the scriptures, it's talking about multitudes of people. It's talking about all the peoples and nations and tongues and so on. So this gives us a perfect definition of what the waters are. 
Then it goes on and says, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, those will hate the harlot. Remember, there are seven heads, but there were ten horns. Don't forget the imagery here. The ten which you saw on the beast, the ten horns, these will hate the harlot. Now remember that the ten horns are kings, as it were, of nations of the past. As we looked at all of the ones that did, the five are fallen and uh, the six comes later and so on. Uh, anyway, uh, just trying to catch up, make some sense to this, to those who may be here for the first time. The ten horns which you saw on the beast, those will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now, I have to stop and tell you that the beast and the, the, with the seven heads and ten horns is, is kind of like a rodeo. You've got the great harlot sitting on a bucking bronco with seven heads and ten horns. And I say that because I, I said a couple of weeks ago that when we saw this picture for the first time, anytime we see a writer of something, the writer's in control, right? Or at least should be. At least should be. But I said that in, in effect, what's, what's happening here is that the writer is not in control, the beast is. Now, when you go to the rodeo, what do you see? Sometimes you see the bucking Broncos, guys riding the Broncos. Who's, you, you would hope the guy that's going to win is the one in control. But a lot of times, two seconds later, and the guy's flying off. All right, I'm just giving you a picture of the fact that not always a person riding is in control. The beast, or I should say the, the great harlot, thinks she's in control, but they're going to hate her and they're going to kill her. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. Eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. How interesting that the world today thinks that it's doing everything in, contra- you know, in, in contrary uh, direction to what God has wanted, and certainly they are, but God will even use that to get all of His purposes accomplished. That's why we say that God and God alone is sovereign. That God and God alone is in total and complete control of everything. That even in the situation that looks to the world, from the standpoint of the world, that everything has now gone to H-E-L-L, right? God's still in control. Until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Kind of scary picture there. But for the last six weeks or so, we've been dissecting chapter 17 in order to lay down as solid a foundation as possible in identifying all of these world players of the tribulation period, specifically the characters of this chapter. The woman identified as the great harlot, mystery Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. The beast which has the seven heads and the ten horns, 
the seven heads, which are seven mountains or, or kingdoms along with the kings, the ten horns, which we will get to this evening, and, and the waters upon which the great harlot sits, which has been generally described in verse 15. Now, in order to allay some of the confusion that may have occurred last week, I want to carefully review the chapter and add a few things along uh, the way to conclude this chapter, which actually moves us right into chapter 18. Now, one thing I do want to add is a comparison-contrast connection with the great harlot passage here in chapter 17 and with another woman mentioned in chapter 21. So what I'd like for you to do, let's, let, me, let me read a f- couple of verses from chapter 17, verses 1 and 3. You've all, we've already kind of studied this, but, but it's important for us to read it once again. Revelation 17, verse 1 says that one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. The great harlot is a woman, right? So, verse 3 says, So he carried me away in, in the spirit into the wilderness. Where? Into the desert. Remember that. Into the desert. This is very important. And then it says, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, I want you to compare that to two verses in Revelation 21. So go forward, if you will. Go forward to Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10. And in Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10, it says, Then one of the seven angels... Now, what I want you to compare here is how similar the wording is to chapter 17, the beginning of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, just as he said at the beginning of chapter 17, right? Saying this, Come, I will show you the bride. The Lamb's wife. Now, that's the contrast here, but it is a comparison in that there's something here that God wants us to see in this comparison-contrast connection. Using the same kind of language. And then in verse 10 it says, And he carried me away. Now, when, he, when the angel tells him about the great harlot, he carries him away to the desert, the wilderness. But here it says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. There's the difference. There's the the contrast. And showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem. Now, what do we know about the great harlot? She is also a city called Mystery Babylon. So now he sees that here in in chapter 17, and then he's in 21, he's given us another picture, or at least the Lord is giving John another picture to give us. He says, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. So there is an obviously strong connection between these two passages. There are women mentioned in both cases, a great harlot, in contrast to a bride. The two are very contrary things, aren't they? The bride is a legitimate companion. 
to a bridegroom or to a husband. While the harlot is an illegitimate companion. Now, while we're in chapter 21, who does the bride represent? Well, let's continue to look at verse 10, since we still have it up here. It says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now I want to add a couple of other verses to the description. Let's go back to verse 2 of Revelation 21. Because there it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The next verse would get you all the way down to verse 24. Notice what it says. And the nations of those who are saved. Now, some of your modern translations may not have that in there. That's too bad. Because this is in, in, the, in the Greek text for a reason. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. That is the light of, the, of this city. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Now, I'm not done. I want you to go back to chapter 19. Go to 19, chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Notice what it says. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. Verse 8. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So who does the bride represent, you see? The bride represents, well, first of all, of course, it's described for us already. The the lamb's wife. Who is the lamb? Jesus, the lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. So the bride represents the lamb's wife. Standing for all of the saved. Standing for the saints. Those that have been set apart for Christ. Throughout all. Throughout all time. Now. That's why we had to look at all those verses. So you can see who the bride represents. The next question is this. On the other hand, who does the mother of harlots represent? As already covered, she represents all false religions. She represents all false religions. All of them. Whether they be pseudo-Christian or non-Christian. Whatever it may be, if it is false, then she represents it. She represents all frauds and counterfeits of the real thing. And what we have been learning about that Antichrist spirit 
is that it is counterfeit to everything that God has made to be good. Everything that God has created or made to be right, made to be just, made to be holy, made to be true. There is a truly a Messiah. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. There's a counterfeit. There's an Antichrist. There is the person that we know as the Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us into all of the truth of the Scriptures and of Jesus. There is, as we've seen now up to this point, a counterfeit spirit known as the false prophet. Certainly we know uh, there's a God the Father, but you know that's just Satan himself, the counterfeit, as far as counterfeit to the true God. So there's all kinds of counterfeits. And as I was pointing out, last week with that map of the last week or the week before the map of the Roman Empire the western and eastern parts of the Roman Empire every area of that uh, uh, crescent as it were I'm trying to draw it from, from your perspective but every every part of that crescent of the area of the Roman Empire western and eastern was everything that was invaded by the Islamic empire or the growing Islamic threat to the world. And so it considers itself to be the true religion of all, yet it is counter to everything that is true. You can speak to some ex-Muslims who will tell you that when they first started reading the scriptures, they said, your, your Christ is our Antichrist. Your Antichrist is our Christ. But then they began to see the reality of, of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and that's what changed their lives. So there is this tremendous counterfeit that we are seeing all around us Because there's one true faith. That's what our scriptures teach us. One true faith. Everything that isn't of that faith is counter. And even though there will be some people who say they are Christian, but if they go in directions that keep them away from God or keep them away from the truth of the gospel, keep them away from salvation by grace and by faith alone, and all of the doctrines that we have learned from the scriptures to be true and right, then we have to question because we have to judge the fruit of that person from the standpoint of God's word. So with all of that said, we know that does take us back, of course, when we think of this contrast between the harlot and the bride, we know that takes us back to the book of Genesis. You know, this, this thing about the fraud, the, the counterfeit, the, you know, the, the false prophet, the false teachings, the false Christ that we talked about a few weeks ago. 
It takes us back to Genesis chapter 11. We're not going to go there, but we've already covered it. The birthplace of Babylon the Great, which is Babel. And the phrase mystery Babylon the Great implies that as a city, it was a previously unknown city. In other words, mystery Babylon the Great. It was a city not known at that time. So it makes us realize that though there was a region called Babel or Babylon, the, the, the plains of Shinar or Shinar, uh, we talked about that in our first study of, of, of chapter 17. I, I didn't nail down to say that that was really the only place that Babylon the Great is. Because when it mentions a city, doesn't necessarily mean just a, a city like El Paso, but it also can represent a much greater area of, of uh, ge- geographically, but also uh, uh, theologically. So it was a previously unknown city, but it is connected. Mystery Babylon the Great is connected to its origin and its representation and characteristics that go all the way back to not only Babel, but in fact takes us all the way back to the garden where Satan was. Because that's, he's, he's actually the, the very heart of that whole uh, fraud. So remember that the people saw... There in Babel, in Genesis 11, the people sought what? They sought to exalt themselves above heaven, didn't they? They sought to exalt themselves about heaven, above heaven, and in effect, they were exalting themselves really above God, weren't they? Not just about heaven, but above, above God. I mean, I just want to take you to one verse. It says in Genesis 11, verse 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city. Remember, Nimrod is at the center of this whole idea of, of being against God. But they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a, and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Now, in essence, <clears throat> this is a... This is plain defiance against the God of creation and all of God's desires for His creation. And what they're saying in this one verse is, we don't want to be told where to go. We don't want to be told what to do. Now it's sad that even today in the church, people will come to church, but they are openly defiant of the truth Saying, well, I want to come to church, but I don't want to do what God says, and I don't want to be what God wants me to be. They don't say it in words. They say it by their actions. So what is then the hallmark, if we look at this as Babel and Babylon, what is the hallmark of Babylon? Let us build a tower. First the city, and then a tower whose top is in the heavens. Now, when you do a study of, of, of Babel and of the Tower of Babel, uh, we, we, we did this a few weeks ago, but we, we talked about the, the birthplace of all false religion. Uh, the tower itself, many people will say, was really the, uh, you know, was, was the catalyst for, for uh, astrology and, and, and that kind of, of uh, false uh, uh, looking at the stars and, and whatnot. And, and all of that, you know, there's, there's truth to all of these things that, that pointed to, to the birthplace of false religions. But here is the hallmark, the building of a high 
or tall tower. Now, you need to consider something that if, if we are believers in God, of the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believing in Him, what do we think of Him? What do we say of Him? Should we not say, as the psalmist himself said in Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock uh, and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. Don't we want God to be our high tower? And what about Psalm 144, verse 2? My loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge who subdues my people under me. My high tower. God's our high tower. We don't need to build one. We have one already. So what are they doing? I want you to look at a high tower. I want you to look at a high tower to consider and where it is today. Some of you may have seen this. It, it, it is a high tower. This is the Dubai Tower. It is 2,722 feet high. The name has been changed from the Dubai Tower to the Burj Khalifa. Burj is, is, uh, is actually the word for tower. So it's the Tower of Khalifa. Interesting name because it sounds very much like the caliphate that we've been talking about. But uh, Burj Khalifa was named after the president of the United em- Arab Emirates, the UAE. Have you heard of the UAE? All right. Well, the UAE, by the way, oh, here's another picture. This is actually a real photo. The other one was a concept picture. But this is the real photo in Dubai of the tallest building in the world. It's in Dubai. Kind of has that same sense of architecture as the pictures that we've seen of the Tower of Babel and other structures that are considered Islamic architecture. I would show you more pictures, but because of time I won't. But here's the thing. So you'll know where the United Arab Emirates is. Of course, there is Saudi Arabia there in the yellow. And if you look right at what, what would be considered the southeast portion, that right there, right there is the United Arab Emirates. And right there is Dubai, right there, right next to Abu Dhabi. Some of you have heard of Abu Dhabi and Dubai? You didn't fall asleep in geography class last week? All right, yeah, there's a lot of mention of that. And you know, normally when you hear about Dubai, you're, you're hearing about one of the richest places in all of the world. I'm going to talk about that because I think it... it, it, it it, it really helps us to understand where we're going with all of this. Dubai is a relatively new city built to cater to the rich and the powerful. It was built for that purpose, to cater to the rich and the powerful. Someone, someone described it as a city that was miraculously risen out of the desert over the past 30 years or so. Miraculously risen out of the desert. 
The desert, keep that in mind. Now therefore, it was not previously known. Just within the last 40 years has this city been planned and put together. And if you, if you go back one step and, and look at the development around this city, it is completely modern. And yet it is run completely by Saudi or Arab emirs. That's why it's called the Emirates. This is the royalty that... By the way, I'm going to set this in here right now, but you'll see a little bit why I say this. The Arabs who wear, you know, the white gowns that are called princes, kings, the the royalty of, of, of Arabia, as it were, they're not very much liked by certain sects within, within Islam. And you, you'll, you'll understand why here in just a moment. Mystery Babylon the Great was a city that was not previously known. So just keep that in mind. Dubai boasts the world's tallest building, as we just saw. Although there is a proposed tower. Now listen to this. There is a proposed tower to be built in, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. I do around here. Let's see where. I don't want to mess up my pointer here. But uh, let's see. I, can, I, I saw it somewhere. I think it's right in the, this area. Anyway, but the, Saudi Arabia. Uh, <clears throat> the, the tower itself is planned to be 1.6 kilometers up into the air. A little over a metric mile in the air. Now, this is a comparison. This is the Burj Dubai, the the one we were just talking about. These two are proposed also, so they're not... They're taller than this one, but this... They're they're just uh, in in the planning stages as well. This is what they want to build in Saudi Arabia. What a competition. It's almost twice as high. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's just crazy. That's pretty high. A mile up in the air. Almost a mile. As a matter of fact, it's called, I don't know if you can see it, Mile Tower, <laughs> 1,600 meters. That is crazy. All right, well, anyway, this is not about my opinion. Getting back to Dubai, it boasts the world's first seven-star hotel. Now, some of us sometimes, I mean, we, we travel around the world. Or, you know, the world is, is, is New Mexico, Arizona. And, and we stop at two, three-star hotels and we think... Hey, you get breakfast in the morning, man, a a hard-boiled egg and a piece of toast. Ah, boy, I love that. That's about a two-star hotel. They could boast the first seven-star hotel in Dubai. I don't know what that means, because I couldn't even afford to stay there three minutes. So, they have also the world's largest shopping mall. They have the world's largest man-made port. They have the first indoor, listen to this, the first indoor ski resort in the Middle East. 
They have a Tiger Woods golf course. Tiger goes to Dubai a lot. So do a lot of the other golfers. They, they go there because they, they bring them in because of the money. And they got the money to pay these guys to go. Uh, diamonds, they're known for diamonds now. Big time. Fashion. Financial services. Now, what's the irony here, folks? This is a predominantly Islamic country. They boast some of the greatest financial services across, around the world. <clears throat> but most importantly, and here it is, folks, listen carefully. Most importantly, Dubai has a vast slave labor force. All that we had seen that was built, all built by slave labor, and it also has the premier sex, drug, and human trafficking rings in all of the world. Its slave labor force has built this city in a very cost-effective way. You know how they did it? They charged exorbitant fees to the workers for the worker permits. They can't pay them right offhand, so they say, well, you'll work it off. But it's so high that they hardly get anything at all. On top of that, the 300,000 construction workers that have been building that city were housed and have been housed and are being housed in awful slave camps. A lot of sickness, a lot of stuff. People don't see where they are. But they also take, it's, well, by the way, it's auspices of the government, and they also take their passports. They confiscate their passports, these workers, because then they can't leave. So they truly are slaves. And along with this problem, the prostitution and sex trafficking rings are sanctioned by the government as well, though not out in the open. Enough said. We know that there are two types of harlotry. There are two types of harlotry. Of course, there's physical, but there's also spiritual. Well, spiritual harlotry, which is unfaithfully serving God by serving other gods, that is the enticing of people, as well as governments and nations, into the pleasures of the flesh for gain. For money. Is it any wonder that the great harlot will ride the beast upon the sea of humanity? Verse 15. Until the beast and the ten kings destroy her, as in our text. Look at verse 16. Now, let's go back to Revelation 17, verse 16. It says, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. One of the reasons why I do not believe that this is talking about the Western Roman Empire is that if you look at Europe, Europe is, is, just, is, is just as corrupt in many, of these, uh, in many of these ways. Why would they want to destroy this Saudi royalty that's making all this money and, and in effect is also supplying a lot of the 
arms for Hezbollah and Hamas and, and Al-Qaeda. Remember who were, the, uh, who were the terrorists on 9-11 of 2001? They were Saudi. But they're going to turn on the harlot. Would they turn? Because, would, would, would Europe be the one to turn on them? If they are indeed the great harlot? If, if Rome was the great harlot, would, would Europe turn on the Vatican? See, there's, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit. doesn't make sense. The majority of Europe is Catholic, as it were. Though very non-practicing in, in a lot of ways, they wouldn't turn. So, so you see why we've taken all this time to go through these things and look at what's happening in the world today and realize this is a viable alternative to what we have heard before. Now, if this is indeed the world empire of the time period, what we were just talking about, <clears throat> and it is related to the Islamic caliphate that was of the seven, if you remember back in verse 11, it tells us that the, the seventh and the eighth were of the seven, or the eighth, I should say, the eighth empire, which is be the time of the, of the uh, uh, Great Tribulation. It was of the seven, every part having its connection to the previous empire, and all the eight empires, not only going back to the plains of Shinar, which is Babel, but in fact going, uh, you know, it can be traced all the way back to the spiritual desires of the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3, then the harlot can be identified with the enemies of Israel, the, uh, the believers in Jesus Christ and Jesus himself. If this is all the case, and if you go back, look with me, if you will, just go back a little bit over to... Uh, what we saw in verses 13 and 14. It says, These are of one mind, and they will give power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is, he is Lord of Lord and kings of king, uh, king of Kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. Listen, who's going to be against Jesus? Except that religion that is completely against Christ, completely against the God, uh, the one true God and living God, and the people of God both Jew and Christian. So you may have to ask the question, and you might have already asked the question, why do Muslims kill Muslims? Because that happens a lot. You read the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, you read Isaiah 19, you realize, first of all, that, that Jesus is going to go to Isaiah, I mean, Jesus is going to go to uh, Egypt, and He's going to fight with them. But it tells us in the book of, of Isaiah that, that Egypt itself, within Egypt, Egyptians will be killing Egyptians. Now, in, in one sense, Islamic Egyptians are already killing the Egyptian Copts, C-O-P-T-S. That, that's a, a Christian sect. And they've been killing the Copts for a long time. But they also have internal wars. The wars between the, Shia, the, the Sunni and the Shia. And then there are the Wahhabists, which really are the, you know, they're the ones that control all of the stuff that we were looking at in, this, in, in, in the Saudi lands. 
But why do Muslims kill Muslims? Well, there are significant differences, of course, within Islam. As I said, Sunni, Shia, Wahhabi, Sufi. And some of these differences have led to bloodshed between them. And they're all still united in their hatred toward the West, toward the United States, and toward Israel. You know, they hate each other but at times, but they're united against us and against Israel and against the God of Israel. Many of the radical Islamic terrorist groups that we've had to deal with over the past 20 years, they have no great love for the Arabs of Saudi Arabia, as I mentioned to you before, and the descriptions I've given earlier are some of the major reasons. But is it possible then that Arabia is the great harlot? Is it possible? Yes, it is. It's possible. I'm not just going to sit here, like I, I read all these things on, you know, uh, sometimes on, on the uh, internet, you know, you know, so-and-so is the Antichrist, so-and-so, or this nation, or that. I'm just saying, think about it. Could it be? And then compare it to the Scriptures and what we're seeing today. Is it possible that Arabia or Saudi Arabia is the great harlot? But I can tell you this, it certainly isn't Rome, it's not New York, or even the United States, as some people say, you know, the great heartland is the United States of America. I mean, though there may be complicity, there might be complicity, but they're not the great harlot. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 21. I'm going to do this as quick as I can, and if I go a little bit long, I'm sure you won't throw anything at me. Well, I'm asking you not to. Isaiah 21, verse 9. It says, And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Uh, This is the next part that I want you to see. Then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Now, I have to tell you that uh, the immediate fulfillment of this particular prophecy was in 689 B.C. against ancient Babylon... And it would point to a far fulfillment, though, to mystery Babylon. Why do we know that? Why does this point to a further fulfillment far away in time? Because we've already covered this in Revelation 14, verse 8. It says, another angel, another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. The very same terms. It's tying that prophecy of Babylon's destruction the first time to the very fact that it has risen again and it is going to be destroyed again. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that, uh, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Think about the next two, two chapters over, chapter 16. We studied this as well. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And then, of course, in verse 5 of this chapter that we're studying, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, go on over into chapter 18. And look at verse 2 of chapter 18. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. 
I find it hard to find anything in the Scriptures where any other city is, is emphasized as being fallen twice. So that is a significant thing about Babylon, the great city. So going back to that prophecy I gave you in Isaiah 21, throughout the whole chapter there are names given there that are all areas, listen, all areas that fall in and around Arabia. Let me show them to you. Isaiah 21 verse 11. The burden against Duma. Now there are various Dumas that come out of biblical study. There was a Duma that was close to Hebron in, in, in Israel. But this Duma was not that. This Duma is an area that is found in Saudi Arabia. The burden against Duma. He calls to, uh, to me out of Seir, watchman what of the night, watchman what of the night, but Duma. I'm, I'm just, I just want to point out the names that are given on this prophecy that is dealing with the judgment and the... Uh, the fierceness of God's wrath against Babylon. Uh, the next is verse 13, the burden against Arabia. That's pretty obvious, right? I'd say Arabia's in Arabia. Anybody want to argue with me about that? Pretty clear. The burden against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia, you will lodge, oh, you traveling companies of Dedanites. Uh, uh, verse 16, it says, For thus the Lord has said to me, Within a year, according to the year of the hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail. Kedar is... By the way, Duma and Kedar were sons of Ishmael. And they are in Arabia. All the locations mentioned in Isaiah 21 were found in the desert of Arabia. We've already seen the harlot's connection with the desert, haven't we? Where was John taken to the desert to see the great harlot? Jesus even warned that deceivers would come out of the desert. I know that I've covered this, so this is quick review. But in Matthew 24, verses 24 through 26, Jesus himself said, For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand... In other words, I'm telling you now that these things are going to happen. And then he says, therefore, if they say to you, look, he is out in the desert. Do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Who else came out of the desert? Muhammad. As a matter of fact, what's very interesting about everything in, in Islam is the cities of Mecca and Medina. in Saudi Arabia. Another important description of the harlot that we haven't touched on until now is that the kings of the earth, we've already seen that phrase in our text, the kings of the earth have committed fornication, we're told. They have committed fornication and adultery with the great harlot to drink her wine. You've seen that, right? To drink her wine in exchange for betraying, listen, in exchange for betraying the children of God, the Jews and the Gentiles. I'm sorry, the Jews and the Christians. As a matter of fact, let me read them to you. Revelation 2, 17, verse 2. 
with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. You know, a lot of times we say, well, wait a minute, purple and scarlet, that sounds like the robes of the, 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 of the Catholic priests. It does? Well, possibly it does. And again, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, I'm not here to defend them because much of the way that, they, uh, much of the way that they're believing today is really against the Scriptures in a lot of ways. They've adopted, as a matter of fact, they've adopted a lot of the Babylonian practices into the, the Catholic ritual. We'll talk about that in another time. But here's the thing. Purple and scarlet adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls. That's just riches, folks. That's riches. Having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness filthiness of her fornication. And then verse 6, it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. I must ask you this question because we are dealing allegorically here because we need to understand what the wine is. So we're dealing allegorically that points to something that is literal. The question is, is there a desert wine that not only intoxicates the earth, but also causes the region to grow exceedingly rich? Has it kind of hit you yet? And then let me ask another question. I think somebody said it, but that's good. Here's another question. What false religion today promotes the blood of Jews and Christians that it should be shed? Think about it. You don't have to think long. You already know. Another question. Is there a nation in the desert today? that could be considered the geographical birthplace from which this false religious system could be birthed. And, last question, does Israel continue to be compromised because of this spiritual harlotry in places like the United Nations? Think about that. Over what? Over this wine. You know what the wine is now? Turn to Joel chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. Joel chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. The prophet says, For behold, in those days and at that time, and this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Joel, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, um, are they back? They're, they're back. They're, there's a land now, and it's called Israel. For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, notice, my heritage Israel, 
whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. Oh, don't mess with God's land. You thought I was going to say don't mess with Texas. Don't mess with God's land. Verse 3. They have cast lots for my people. Have given a boy as a payment for a harlot. There's the connection with harlotry. And sold a girl for wine. There's a connection with wine. That they may drink. Allegorically, the harlot uses Islam and oil. Oil as her wine. You know, if we were to go ahead and drill in Alaska and in the United States, all the places that uh, the environmentalists today are trying to keep us from from drilling. I don't know what we're saving by doing that. But if we were able to do that, we would not need one drop. Listen, we don't need one drop of Arab oil. We wouldn't need it. But we're complicit. We're complicit. And this is the reason why when you go and see votes taken against Israel at the United Nations constantly and then you look at the the weekly uh, uh, oil barrel prices and the fluctuations that go on they're just in control of it isn't it aren't they the Arabs are OPEC the scriptures tell us about it too They use oil as her wine to seduce the nations into committing spiritual harlotry with her to compromise Israel. That is what Joel is saying God is going to judge. Now if you go, uh, go back to Revelation 18, that's we're almost done, I think. Pretty close. But go back to Revelation 18, verse 3. I want you to notice what it says there. It says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. Are you getting a picture now of what spiritual harlotry is all about? What, why this is such an important picture? Why we've spent six weeks in this chapter? Uh, and the merchants of the earth, listen, the merchants of the earth have become rich. Through the abundance of her luxury. Turn quickly to Jeremiah 51, verse 13. It says, O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come, the measure of your covetousness. That is a prophecy against Arabia. And Babylon. This is the connection we just made with Babylon and Arabia. That map that we saw earlier of Saudi Arabia and Arab, uh, uh, United Arab Emirates, if you notice just above, 
It was Iran, just uh, uh, northeast Iran, right next to it is Iraq, where Babylon is. But the whole area itself. Oh, by the way, check out the context. Vengeance will be taken upon Babylon. This is about Babylon. By the way, this next passage is not allegorical. This is not allegorical. Turn with me to Isaiah 34, verses 8 through 10. We are almost done. I'm going to tell you that until we're done. Isaiah 34, verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. That tells us the day when it's, when you see that, that's a marker for us to remember. This is the day of the Lord. This is within the time period of the great tribulation. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Next verse. Its streams shall be turned into pitch. You know what that word is in the Hebrew? Oil. Now listen. And its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. How many of you remember during the first Persian Gulf War back in the 90s? How many remember those pictures right after we invaded there through Kuwait to protect Kuwait from uh, from the Iraqi government, uh, the you know the, the Saddam Hussein regime at that time. How many remember all of those wells that were burning? That was you remember, Fred. You were there. <laughs> that was nothing in comparison to what this is talking about. We just saw glimpses of pictures of small areas where the oil was burning right out of the ground. This is all the land as judgment. And it says, it's turned into pitch, and the land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. In other words, nobody's going to, there ain't a fire department anywhere going to turn that stuff out. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lay waste or lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever. Endeavor. What a judgment. All right, let's close out the chapter. Give me another three minutes. Here we go. Ready? So let's go back to Revelation 17. And let's look at verses 16 through 18 very quickly, because we've already covered some of this. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. You see that phrase? Burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. How often do we see in Scripture that God will use the enemies that are against Israel to be against themselves? Think about that time where... uh, those three nations were against, it was Second Chronicles chapter 20, the three nations that were against uh, 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 King Jehoshaphat and the, the children of Judah. And they were told to go out in praise. They said, you go out and worship the Lord. You just go praise. That's your, that's your weapon, the praise of God. And we're told that the three nations killed each other. They destroyed each other. 
God is in control, folks. God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, simply speaking, the beast and its ten kings, the eighth empire of Antichrist, that's what it is, the eighth empire, will destroy the harlot because it hates her spiritual idolatry and her spiritual fornication, even though, listen, even though she was a means to an end. And it's interesting that in verse 18 we are told that the great city, Mystery Babylon, reigns. You see that word there? Reigns over the kingdoms of the earth? This can be misunderstood. The city does not reign over the kingdoms of the earth as we would consider a reign, like God reigns over our hearts and rules. This is not about ruling. The word is the Greek word echo, E-C-H-O, echo. And it means to have and hold. To have and hold. In other words, the great city, the great Babylon, the great harlot Babylon will have an immoral influence. It is to have and to hold influentially. To have an immoral influence over the world. Primarily based on its riches due to their wine called oil. And this leads us now into chapter 18 and the destruction of the harlot, which is next time. And as I always want to leave you with the encouragement of the Word of God, turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. This is our blessing as well for tonight. It says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. May God comfort you, because really for us, what are we looking for? The coming of Jesus Christ. I'm not looking for the coming of Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I'm coming again. And I'm coming quickly, and I want you to be ready, and I want you to keep looking up, because your redemption draws near.